0: That's heritageradionetwork.org/15 to donate and enter to win today, and make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Shacksbury Cider.
1: Hi guys, I'm Jamie Oliver, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year. HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. How amazing. For the past decade, they've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and so much more. It's been 10 years, and they're
2: just getting started. Learn
1: more at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one happier host, Greg Bresnitz. Today, we have an all Lafayette, Louisiana episode taped at the legendary Dockside Studios. First up, we have Holly Gerard, the third-generation owner of Ton's Drive-In, who has the distinction of being the first drive-in window in the entire area. Next up, we have Justin Tockett, the engineer from Dockside Studio, that takes us through a little bit of history on this week's Snacky Tunes 5. And finally, Roddy Romero plays some of his legendary songs and talks to us about being a childhood French box prodigy and the Louisiana sound. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes.
3: We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky
2: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. That was just Roddy Romero and the Hub City All Stars, who will be playing live later on in the episode. We are coming from Dockside Studios in Lafayette, Louisiana. Still Lafayette? It's
4: in what? Is this Melton or Maurice?
2: Maurice. We're in Maurice. Maurice. <laughs> but what parish are we in?
4: Are we in Lafayette Parish?
2: We are in Lafayette. Yeah, parish. it's a,
4: it's a blur over here. It's like the edges of parishes and towns. We're in the middle of a lot.
2: Well, Holly Jarrett, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Hey. Hi. Hi. <laughs> um, we're going to get to tons, which your grandparents started. But before we do that, I thought it might be good to educate the listeners on where we are in our beautiful country.
3: Oof.
4: The boot. We're in the boot. <laughs> uh, the Delta South. We're in the middle, south, central Louisiana. The thick of the Louisiana culture.
2: And what is that Louisiana culture?
4: Hmm, I think it's food, family, music, uh, friends, a lot of camaraderie and community. Some late nights? Many, many late nights. Maybe like one too many? (laughs) Probably, especially now during the holidays.
2: I I, I keep coming during the holidays and I think like everyone is real tired. I'd like to come here on just like a random weekend, a third Saturday and just live it up.
4: Yeah, catch everybody. Or Tuesday. (laughs) We can do Tuesdays.
2: So let's go all the way back to early 1960s. Your grandparents, Alton and Rosemary, were living in downtown Lafayette. Rosemary was a dressmaker.
4: Yes. Well, so they are—my grandfather grew up on a farm in Broussard. My grandmother grew up in Brobridge, where her family actually had a little drive-in as well. Uh, They got married and moved to Broussard together. Um, And then they both worked in Lafayette and commuted back and forth to Broussard um where she opened a restaurant and he still worked at a hardware store and then once they started getting busy enough and had enough business, they both uh just went in full steam.
2: So what do you know the name of your great grandparents drive in?
4: I think it was Mole Bears.
2: And did it did it end up shutting down before tons opened?
4: I'm not sure about that. I'd have to find out. I'm so they curious. weren't competitors? No, they weren't really competitors competitors and they were about thirty minutes apart, so you got to
2: and what was it, when your grandmother was making dresses, Like, what was it that inspired her to get back to the drive-in? And she talked about ma- wanting to make an old-school drive-in, and we're talking about like 1963, so what was yeah. old-school in 1960s? I
4: guess it's kind of what a Sonic would look like now. It's it's car hops, uh, old-school drive-in where you park your car, you order, someone brings it out to your car. Um, so that's what the original Tons was. It was... An old school drive-in it was right next to the school where her children went so i think she was just always wanted to cook for people and feed people she always liked doing that
2: And do you what were some of the early menu items
4: um we our chili dogs and our burgers that we still have the exact same recipes for and that are still some of our top sellers those were two original items and we had pizza <laughs> which we don't have pizza anymore but we had pizza. What was,
2: like, a 1960s Broussard pizza like?
4: I have no idea. That's probably why we don't have them anymore. Yeah, maybe, like,
2: not. <laughs> maybe just read about it somewhere, didn't exactly translate. Yeah. And and you said that at the time that your grandfather worked in the store during the day and then took on the night shift. Uh, yeah. Tons opened in 1963. How long did it take for it to get up and running where he was able to to do it full-time?
4: I think just in the first couple years. uh, Broussard is a small town. It's growing. But at the time, we were the only uh, eatery, I think. Or at at least right now, we're the longest eatery that's still open. Um, So there weren't many options. She she sold ice cream. It was right next to a school. So I think all the kids just went there after school. It was kind of the after-school hangout for a while.
2: And what was it, and, and also the family is a really big part of it. So when did, and which side is these grandparents on, your mom or your dad's uh, side? My dad's
4: side. Carl. Yes, Carl. So um, it's my dad's family. So he and his sister Yvette worked there when they uh, we were growing up as well. And, um, and then my mom started, her family moved to Broussard from Brobridge, and she started working there when she was 16.
2: Is that how they met?
4: That is how they met, yeah. Did he hire her? No, my grandmother would have done all of that. Okay. Uh, so. Did
2: she hire her with a thought in mind?
4: No, I don't think so. And I think some of the workers at the time gave my mom a hard time about it, about dating the boss's son.
2: So she got hired when she was 16. When did she start dating Carl?
4: They got married when they were sev- When she was 17. Oh, so like. She was still She got hired high school. and
2: then he was, he went.
4: I think. I bet it was just a few months. He's like, it she's was like quick. I'm
2: going to have to ask my boss for the Friday night shift off. He's like, we got it covered. Yeah. It's exactly. fine. Yeah. You You're, free. Get, you <laughs> You're free. You can have. You're free. So they met when they're 16, 17. So she's been working there since she was 16, and, and you and her run it now. Yeah. So uh, did she have to work up the ranks, or once she got married, she was given the keys?
4: She is a really hard worker and a good team player, so I'm sure she just is a natural. And she's the oldest of six kids. Wow. And I think she took care of them at an early age on her own if her parents left town for the weekend. And so I think she was, had a lot of responsibility early on. So I think she, I, it was only natural for her to have that responsibility.
2: And what changes has happened to tons in, since 1960? It's 55 years, congratulations, Yeah, which is amazing. Thanks. What cha- What's changed and what's also stayed the same?
4: Well, some of the recipes have stayed the same, uh, like our chili, our burgers, some of the staples we started with. Um, and we did. We we moved locations in the mid '70s across the street, so not far. Did and people we, lose
2: their shit though?
4: No, they people didn't. were fine. I think it was fine. Okay. I think we moved into a bigger space, and we had the very first drive-through window in Lafayette Parish.
2: Was that, like, was that big news? It was,
4: yeah, totally big news. Do you have
2: saved newspaper clippings of, like, first drive-through window? No,
4: and but I also it wasn't, it's not like my family to, or my grandparents or parents to brag about stuff like that, so it would have it never been a thing. But I'm proud of it.
2: It's a good claim. It's I mean, we're American. not
4: fast food, but no. it, we did have the first, it was first fancy window.
2: So you moved, <laughs> I could think of somebody, like, I like the old... Tons like you know, they're like 80 years old now, yeah. It like Used to be better than 67, right? It's much better. So, that so that's the same, but like, what's changed or what's evolved with the times?
4: Um, I think in a world of fast food and uh, instant gratification, because we're not fine dining, people just assume that it should be cheap and quick, and that's not really what we do. And I think, um, we've kind of revisited where our food is coming from. We want to make sure that we are still supporting local businesses. And uh, so the change has been more geared towards, you know, growing more stuff and and changing things like how much we waste, you know, changing from cocktail straws to stirring sticks or noodles, things like that.
2: And is that something since your family doesn't brag about is that something that you just implement and you wait for the customer to find out or is there an education process that comes along with it as well
4: um most of the time it's it's trial and error
2: what have been some good errors that you've learned from
4: oh man i don't know there's so many errors we learn every day
2: (laughs) um and let's talk about you because you are now running it with your mom third generation um you grew up in 4h yeah, which for those who do, who grew up in a more city setting, what is
4: 4-H? So 4-H is God, I forget what all the. It's four H's. It stands for like heart health. Uh, I don't even, I don't remember what and they all stand H's. for. H's. Yeah, two more H's. People pause uh, the podcast.
2: <laughs> Google 4-H. Welcome back.
4: Yes, thank you. Um, and we raised animals. So at a young age, I learned how to take care of animals, but then learn why we raise them, and they would feed our families. And so, you know, after six months of raising these piglets into big hogs, I would go and I would sit and read books to them before they had to go to the slaughterhouse because I was I was saying my final goodbyes. But that was a learning process for me to understand where our food comes from and how important it is to know what we're feeding ourselves and our families. And you
2: know. and did you feel that that was a through-line... From the opening of Tons, it was always local, finding out, and educating, working with local farmers? Or is that something yeah. that uh, was part of the evolution?
4: Well, yeah, it was. Whenever we first opened, my grandmother, would, ki- she would slaughter a calf. She would have a calf slaughtered every week. And every part of it was used. So all the ground beef went to burgers. Then uh, we cut up beef for our smothered beef plate lunches. And so that was always a definite thing. I mean, we still get all of our pork from a local butcher within a block from us.
2: So you went to school f- and you got a uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts. Yes. You had your own thing. What drew you back to the restaurant?
4: Um, I think family, really. Uh, there are. I like to travel. I like to do all sorts of stuff, especially um, with the arts. But my mom's there running the, the restaurant by herself, and it is an important legacy. and So many people appreciate it that I kind of feel... Uh, obligated that it's a, a duty of mine that I was born into. Whether it's glamorous or not, it's uh, something that is important.
2: You get a sense with places like these, and especially if you drive around this area, that if if it closes, it's not like another one takes its place. It's like if it closes, it closes, and that light is out.
4: Yeah, exactly.
2: So it feels like, at least from outside looking in, that there's a responsibility to keep these places and, and the connecting to the community and, and the heritage open.
4: Right. Yeah. So that's a lot. To put on your shoulders, on my shoulders.
2: Um, We're going to take a quick musical break, play something from the archives, and then we'll be back to talk about the food, the kitchen, and all things tons here on Snacky Tunes.
5: At the end of the day The shapeless shadow Shadow covers the sun
2: Get into the food. Okay. I've heard so much about the burgers. It's been the same recipe since 1963. Yeah. What is it? and share as much as you can, without giving away the family secrets.
4: Okay. Well, one thing that's really important is fresh beef. So, you know, before I was born, we were slaughtering calves, but now we get a very nice black Angus beef, and we don't compromise on the quality of the beef that we're making the burgers with. So I think starting with really good ingredients is very important.
2: I find that as we've been touring around here, uh, it always goes back to ingredients. And I think that if you speak with, we were at Chuck's the day before, and we, we were with a cake maker earlier, we're doing wedding research, <laughs> that everyone talks about ingredients. They talk about as local as possible, all the good places, and making sure that there's an investment in the community for all sides of, of the pie. Um, Has that always been here? Has that been almost in response to a rise of fast food or has well-sourced, family-oriented, local uh, farmers been a a big point of pride and and necessity for the restaurants here?
4: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think, um, like the description of the area, community and family and all of that are very important to everyone here. I think um, when we were growing up, we were as an area we weren't very kind to chain restaurants they would open and within six months they would shut down because we had so many uh great local people doing business here and I think as we grow we become uh I don't I'm looking for the word uh like it's not as our our focus is not as strong as on you know I guess it dilutes the system Mm -hmm. and so we have more chains and people don't care where their food comes from. And I think it's, there's still some of us holding out to uh, keep that. It's weird present. that it's,
2: you phrase it as holding out because it's almost better like holding up an ideal or hold, holding on to uh, a sense of life, lifestyle that, that is not a given anymore.
4: Yeah, it's like we're working against the grain now, which is something, I feel like it shouldn't be that way. I think it should be the opposite way. The, that more people should care. And I feel like as the days go by, less it's less important to other people.
2: Do you have a sense or do, have your family talked about like uh, an understanding of where the shift might have come from? No. Where once was a chain couldn't last more than six months and now there's like 15 Raising Canes yeah. that you drive by.
4: Well, and I think the town or the city, the whole area has grown. Acadiana is growing. Um so with more people come more options and more more people to uh spend money at those other places.
2: To get back to the food, I want to talk about your po'boys Boys because everyone here has a favorite. Yeah. What sets yours apart?
4: Um well we'll use a local bread, Long Lanae's Bakery.
2: Talk to me about Long Lanay's um,
4: Bakery. So they are they've been o- they're a family business, they've been open for a while. They are near downtown Lafayette. And um so we use a local bread and uh, all the seafood or Gulf seafood. So again, local ingredients. Um, I don't think we we don't change it up or make it something fancy. It's definitely an old school po' boy. It's nothing uh, gourmet. Like I, we love pops. They're our friends. But they they have m- um, more new age twists on their po' boys. We, we have a very traditional po' boy and they're both delicious and they're both different.
2: Do you think that there's room for, since Cajun or Creole cooking is so simple, you know, four or five ingredients, is there room for that type of uh, ad- adaptation? Or do you think people are really kind of, not stuck is not the right word, but they're expectant of that. Is, is it hard to make those changes?
4: Yeah, I'm, definitely not when you sneak it in and you make it great. Uh, for instance, uh, we are, Roddy and I are growing, um, that's my boyfriend who we've roped into uh cooking for us at the restaurant he's an excellent chef i'm gonna um, ask him too later in the show but okay you tell me. gosh he makes a really good rice and gravy so roddy's anything roddy's R- roddy's yeah roddy's rice and gravy anything he'll make anything taste great but we um we have been growing our own peppers so instead of using a dry cayenne powder that Seasoning that most people around town would use, we're using fresh peppers that we grew, sometimes habaneros. Instead of a bell pepper, maybe we're roasting poblanos that we grew. So we're slipping new ingredients into the mix that aren't really traditional, but they add flavor and no one would know otherwise.
2: Do people, can, can people taste a difference even if they're not understanding this? Will they ask you about it or will they say, well, this tastes better? Will you notice when you swap out the ingredients? Oh, that definitely.
4: Yeah, I mean, some of our regular guys—they'll know who cooked the dish that day, or they'll be like, "Oh, you know," it's what they'll notice these subtle changes that most people I wouldn't think do. But that's when you have you have regulars. We have regulars that eat there twice a day. They eat breakfast and lunch. Twice and, a day. And they promise that if we were open for dinner, they would be there for dinner too. So when you have people that eat your food that often, they definitely recognize. They're like, was there more salt this time? Yeah, exactly. Was, it, was this a
2: volcanic salt? I'm, I'm tasting a bit of a difference. Right. And outside of Roddy and your dad, the rest of the restaurant is all women. Yeah. How did, how did that happen? Was that a conscious decision?
4: It never was. We've had, since I was growing up, I think we had two other gentlemen that have worked for us in the kitchen. Um, it's not a conscious thing. Women seem to fall into it. And my mom, for instance, is a wonderful uh, guardian for women who need jobs and, and just upliftment. It just, I don't know. She helps, she helps women out that need jobs, and that need um, a good mentor in their lives. So sometimes we, we're we taking on—we're like a women's shelter sometimes, I feel.
2: <laughs> and what type of environment does it foster outside of the more male-driven kitchens that you tend to find? Or what have you found over all this time that it, it brings to the table?
4: Um, well— we not only do we actually have family members that work for us. We do talk to each other and treat each other like family. Um, I think it is because a lot of them are a lot of the women that work with us are are mothers, and um, so we all genuinely care about each other. And when my employees leave, they're they're telling me, "Bye, Miss Holly. I love you. I'll see you tomorrow." And I don't think that that is often. a a phrase uttered in many male kitchens, like, love you, boss. See (laughs) you tomorrow. (laughs) I I have not seen that or heard that.
2: Do you find that the almost empathy and warmth works its way into the food as well?
4: Oh, I think so. I mean, and Roddy cares for his dishes like an old grandmother would as well. So that's the difference. And when you taste his food, you can tell that, I don't know, you can just taste it when people really care about what they're cooking.
2: Did they begrudgingly let him cook? Like was it a, a, a big test run or was he able to slip in there? Um, I'm sensing a sense like, you know, marry the boss or date the boss and you get a good Yeah, it's way nepotism. In. Yeah it's real its nepotism. Finest. Yeah.
4: No, he um and he he's only in there, he's not in there all the time, bossing people around mm. so don't make it like that. But uh he has always been a great cook. I'm sure he cooked for my family before we did a trial run, but uh, yeah, we just let him have it one day. We were like, what plate lunch do you want to cook? We let him have his choice, and uh, I, he's never failed us, so we just, man, my mom is quickly like, here, take more. I'll retire sooner. Just cook everything.
2: Speaking of your mom retiring, uh, you mentioned to me earlier that she is closer to retirement than, than she was. How do you feel about taking over Tons, and, and what do you think that you need to bring to maintain and, and keep growing the legacy?
4: Well, I think we have a solid base, obviously, with the food that we're putting out. I think uh, if it's not broke, we're, we're not going to try and change it or fix it. Um, I think customer service is key, and I want everyone to feel warm and welcome and happy when they come in. So I think a part of my job is to uh, be the liaison and the front of house for our customers, and that's really important.
2: Well, Holly, I want to thank you for making time for coming on Snacky Tunes and letting us come to Dockside Studios to yeah. record this. Uh, where can people find you? How can they follow you? Come eat your food, learn more about you.
4: Um, we're on Instagram at tonsdrivein. It's T-O-N-S-D-R-I-V-E-I-N. And um, same thing, tonsdrivein.com. And we're on Facebook as well.
2: And what hours are you?
4: We are open Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., and then Saturday, 7 a.m. to 2 p.m.
2: Amazing. We're going to take a quick musical break, play a song from the archives. We're going to have Justin from Dockside Studios do our Snacky Tunes Five to give you a little history on the place. And then later in the show, Roddy Romero will be here chatting about music and playing live for us here on Snacky Tunes. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm sitting here with Justin Tockett at Dockside Studios. Justin, thank you for letting us record here today. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about the history of this place.
1: Um, The owners, they opened it in 1989. It's a wonderful couple that live on the property. And it was sort of a uh, field of dream sort of thing. If we build it, they will come. Um, And they've made an amazing place here with really top of the line equipment um and just a wonderful environment to be creative in
2: and and speaking of the if they build it they will come what was the current recording music scene in when they opened it in the in the 80s and and who was playing here and, and was there small studios home studios that people have to go to new orleans or other cities or was there a place in lafayette uh parish that they could record
1: You know, for a long time, since the, I guess, probably the late 50s, early 60s, there was a studio called La Louisiane that's still in business, and that's where they recorded all the vintage uh, swamp pop stuff and a lot of local Cajun bands. So that's really kind of what was going on here at the time. Um, This place sort of early on became a bit of a blues haven. So BB King recorded here, Irma Thomas so many great blues artists, and that was sort of the thing for a long time.
2: And was that a word of mouth? Like, who was first and told their friend and they told a friend? Or was there, did they put an ad in the back of a paper? Or how did how did people begin, begin to find out about this place?
1: You know, definitely studio business in general is word of mouth business. You know, it's, it's really hard to advertise something like that. So it's you're bringing in a plethora of musicians who just go back to where they're from and spread the word. Um but I think probably the B.B. King record probably really put it on the map, especially for
2: blues artists. And do you know what it was about that record that solidified it for artists? Was it a sound? Was it a feel? Or, or was there, what was the genesis qua about the, the record that really put this place on the map?
1: Well, the record was called Blues on the Bayou, and I think... That'll do uh, it. Yeah, <laughs> that'll do, that'll and uh, <laughs> there's definitely, as you know now, since you've been on the property, you know, there's definitely a vibe not just within the studio, but without, you know. it's I think the environment sort of seeps in to the recordings.
2: I mean, Eric and, and Roddy, uh, who recorded here, Hub City All-Stars, they talk about going out to the property. And, and for those who have not had the pleasure of being here can you describe the surrounding? Like, What, what is outside of these, these walls?
1: Sure. This is uh, The property itself is 12 acres, and it's gated. Um, it's right on the Vermilion River, so we could literally walk about 25 feet to our right and be at the riverbed. If it um, keeps raining
2: like this, it'll just come to us. And that
1: has happened before. We actually had a flood in here a couple years ago. I had about a foot and a half of water. What's the, the first place. thing you saved? Uh, It was the console, for you (laughs) know. I think that was the main (laughs) that console. It's a vintage 1976 Neve 8058, which is kind of for for geeky engineers like myself. It's sort of one of the holy grail consoles, you
2: know. That was the one that was featured in Sound City, right? The the Dave Grohl one. Correct. That was
1: a Neve as well, a different model. I think it was a little bit earlier, but Mm -hmm. that same Class A technology, you know, British.
2: So you're on the river, and then what else is in the, the property?
1: There, Well, the it's a uniquely, you know, I, I come from Nashville, um, and there are so many studios, but they're all business studios where, you know, you drive yourself to work every day, and, um, and this is really a location studio. So above this building we're in, there's four bedrooms and a kitchen and a bathroom, um, and then there's also what we call the pool house, a separate building, that's also more guest lodging, three bedrooms and another kitchen and a bunch of bathrooms. And um, so, to me, what, what drew me here was the unique experience of living at work. You know, you work until you get tired, you're not watching the clock so much, um, and then you wake up and you're already at work. And this, so, you sort of live your record making experience, which I think is fairly unique.
2: What is it about what is unique about this place? You know every place will say like oh the drums sound the best here or the guitars are really good or You know they can really you know get the the vocals a certain way if you had to pick one element that Is captured or done above all else? What would you say that is?
1: I don't know that I could specify one particular instrument but sonically there are unique spaces that you don't have in most studios. Most studios are very properly built um, booths, which we have. But then there are a couple of interesting rooms. We have a, a tile for for <laughs> a tile foyer <laughs> that uh, um, that works out fantastic as a as a drum room. Um, you know, we get this great live reverb off of it. Um, there's an extra room that I generally find I use for electric guitar amps a lot, and it's a very wooden room with a stairwell, so I'm able to put a mic up the stairwell, and you just get a very interesting sound that you couldn't get somewhere else. You know, It's very personal to the studio.
2: What's the most uh, unique placement of an instrument or vocal that you did within the building to capture for a recording, and who was it?
1: Who? let me think. Oh, I like to get weird with the recording, so we've we've done a bunch of things. Um, this is probably pretty typical among studios, but I have recorded I've recorded uh, violin in the bathroom, which I think is pretty typical because Why there's tile. Oh, okay. It's just a, a very live sound. Um, but we also have mic lines that run upstairs to the sleeping quarter area, and there's this very long narrow hallway that's got an angled slope ceiling. Um, and that's that's a pretty famous spot for guitar players who like to put their amps up there. And you can like the end of the hallway. And it's, a, again, a very beautiful woody sound.
2: Uh, last question. Um, everyone gets writer's block, or they get stuck. Mm. What advice do you give to musicians who are here to break that?
1: Um, I'd have to go back to the environment and just go ahead and get out of the room go find there's a wonderful deck that uh, overlooks the river that's a great spot to have a cup of coffee and unwind and try to take it all in and let the inspiration start coming to you
2: amazing well Justin thank you for making time for us today uh, we'll be right back with Roddy here live on Snacky.
1: alright thank you Greg
0: This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believes cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Virgens, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rose to inventive, small batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first American-made Petnat Cider, continues to experiment every year with limited-edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit shaksbury.com or follow them on Instagram at shaksbury.
2: Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. Roddy Romero, nice Hello. to meet you. Hello pleasure to meet you. Well, we met a couple of days ago. Yes. Yeah, but we'll say if, if in, in our official capacities, professional <laughs> roles, if you will. Today. 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 Uh, I want to do a little bit of framing for people of where we are, because in reading about your music and what you play, uh, I'll just, you know, Zydeco, Swamp Rock, Cajun music, Creole music. Can you clarify all for the uneducated. <laughs> all, yeah, can you <coughs> clarify for the uneducated masses?
6: Well, uh, these days, the description is uh, the Lafayette sound, maybe, or more of uh, what Lafayette may sound like. Uh, all of those sounds that you described is, is definitely where I come from and what uh, moves me in terms of music. Uh, it's all the sounds that I heard growing up as a kid here uh, in Lafayette. Uh, the hub city, the, the heart of Acadiana, so to speak, um, from from Zydeco, uh El Cito's Blues and Zydeco Club growing up, going there, and listening to uh, the famous Buckwheat Zydeco, and listening to uh, artists like Zachary Richard, more of a songwriter approach of Cajun music, Cajun rocker, and, uh, and, and, and back to our great public uh, radio station, KRVS. Uh, still... Making all of these sounds uh, each and every day and every weekend. Uh, it's a great blend. It's a great gumbo. It's, a,
2: it's what we sound like here. Did the sounds used to be more separated? Like you went to a place for Zydeco, you went for a place for Swamp Rock, you went for a place for Blues, you went for a place for Rock and Roll. Did it, was it segmented uh, that way? Or yeah, did, like, I think it, so. Growing up, uh,
6: I started playing music when I was 12 years old. Um,
2: what was your first love? Uh, my first love for the mu- musical instrument
6: uh, well, it was the French box it was the melodeon it was the, the the accordion what we call it here but it's not called an accordion. it's not an accordion. it's a, a tin button box um, much like a harmonica it's diatonic so it's there's no sharps or flats. You pull one note, you push it it's two different sounds. So that was my first love. I first heard that from my grandfather he played a handful of songs for, for us on Sunday afternoons when we'd visit the old people in the country. What songs did he play? He played, uh, he played one song. Uh, it was called Fifi Poncho, or Fifi Foncho, whatever side of the, the river you're from. <laughs> uh, he played that song a lot, so I remember that one the most, uh, and maybe a couple of waltzes. But uh, again, it was this fascinating um, uh, orchestra in a box. It was a. It was a. It was a carnival. It was a Ferris wheel. It was all of that, that sounded like that to a five-year-old, six-year-old child, right.
2: you know. So that that's what drew me in first. And you toured around as a. I don't want to say a courting prodigy, but a, a, you could really play. Well, in those days,
6: uh, it, I started when I was nine. Um, I started having the love, or at least my, my earliest memories were five, six years old. I had a uh, great uncle, uh, Noc Black is what they called him. He was blind. He played the French box. We'll call it the French box for this program. By uh, its rightful name as it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he played uh, just, you know, like the Vuitton, the old time that nobody, like t- today, nobody plays this way. So that's, that's like, it gives me the goosebumps talking about it. That's the earliest memories that I have musically in the family. And again, with my grandfather. And then uh, my father bought the French box when I was nine years old for my brother and I. My brother's 10 years uh, older than me.
2: Two kids, one French box. Did you fight f- over it? Exactly.
6: And whatever reason, because he's older and he's bigger... Uh I won, so I locked myself in the room for the next two years with the French box and vinyl records of, of my parents. This was French music from the nineteen sixties, dance hall music like people like Belton Richard, Aldous Roger. Uh these were this was Cajun music at a time where it was, uh, it was twin fiddles, it was steel guitar, it was lots of Bob Wheels influence coming through Louisiana. So that's the records that I grew up on. And like a lightning bolt, this, this young guy, and I say young, he was in his 20s or you know, early 30s then, then being 1988 or so, called Wayne Toops. And he, he was from the country, he played this French box, he had a band that backed him that had a piano, that had electric guitars, that had electric bass, that had drums, and it sounded like the Almond Brothers uh, singing in French from the bayou or from the rice fields of Crowley. Uh, and that, that, that changed a path, and, and everything else has been different after that. The sounds of the bayou has changed after that.
2: And just for quick understanding, how long has your family been in this area?
6: Uh, well, since I was born, uh, my my dad is from uh, the Ridge uh, Judice area. My mother is from Rain, Louisiana, uh, a little bit further west from Lafayette. When they met, they met at a at a bar called the OST Club, the old Old Spanish Trail. Uh, they they met over a dance and fell in love, and they were you know, teenagers, and people got married back then when they were teenagers. Do you think people meet that way anymore? do People meet know. over, like, a dance?
2: I don't think they get married as teenagers, thankfully. No. Uh, but <laughs> <No>. <laughs> there's
6: lots of meeting at the dance halls. Yes.
2: And still. And how did your music evolve? You, you know, you toured um, at a young age. When did guitar enter your life? When did singing enter your life? And, and who guided you onto that path?
6: Yeah, um, I... I for me, you know, like, like it changed with Wayne Toops, the, my, my, I got out of, out of the dance hall records and then there, this was this rock and roll sound that kind of entered. But it was still fronting, uh, the, the, the French box was still the front of the, of the show. So it, it, people like Zachary Richard and, and then <clears throat> I, I got invited to play the Montreal Jazz Festival when I was
2: 13 years old.
7: How did did that how happen? How did they find I you? I have
2: no idea. I mean, this is uh, you know, I don't won't I won't tell people yeah. your age, but this was definitely pre-internet.
6: Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah, so well, did,
2: and you have no. I mean, I guess you, you know at that time, if you're the if you're the French rock prodigy, if you're the only <laughs> young kid at that
6: time playing, you know, the old time music, then that's how... they're going to find you. That's how it <laughs> happened. Yeah, absolutely. At least we'll talk about it in yeah. that way. So, it. Uh, so I played that jazz fest, and then then I discovered this guy called Sonny Landreth, and he played the bottleneck slide. He lived in Lafayette. He was from Mississippi. I heard these sounds that that were that he was producing out of this bottleneck and this this Firebird Gibson guitar that I never heard in my life at that time before. My only records were you know pedal steel guitars and twin fiddles and nice smooth sound, and it was it was another voice that that. Uh, drew me in, intrigued me, it, it it pulled me, it grabbed me, it did everything that it shook my bones, and I knew at that point in my life that here's another path that well let's 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 entertain this and and I want a guitar now. Do you remember how it made you feel? Sure, uh, I um, I couldn't. There's there's this one time that um it's in Montreal, it's at the Jazz Fest. I hear this guitar down the road. It's a sound check. It's during the daytime. And again, it's it's something that I never heard. And I fi- found myself walking faster and faster and picking up speed to the stage, and then seeing Sonny up on the stage and doing these things that, something I never heard before. It was, it's like, you know, listening to that first Rolling Stone record or, or the first Bob Dylan record, or for me, the first Clifton Chenier record, Zadiko Cha-Cha, that just... You know, it hits you in the forehead, and it says, Hey, man, this is, this is something special here. If you don't feel this, you must be dead. Can we hear a song?
2: Sure. What are you going to play for us first?
6: Uh, I'm going to play a song that uh, was penned by Eric Adcock, my uh, musical brother, for a long, long time. And I, uh, I got the chance to arrange the song in this very studio Maybe about five or six years ago for an album called Gulf Stream. The song is called Gulf Stream.
2: Here we are with Roddy Romero live from Dockside Studios on Snacky Tunes.
7: Dance been shucking dozens since 42 Iron tub ice down full of Falstaff brew Black had a son Bobby Charles called Blue Catholic church bells told the Louisiana Blues Oyster rake Scraping down Grand Isle Way Don't get no more salty Than Baratari Bay A hundred years My family's done it this way Some folks call it work But it's just another day And in life There's always love Comes into your heart from up above Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulfstream and I'm free Politicians, trappers, priests, and more They've all strolled through these double French doors I was so busy just trying to keep their glasses full Folks laughing, drinking, just shooting the bull A million parish sunsets across my bow. Just slipped off the edge, and I don't know how. I turn the key in the lock and close up shop. The owl flies round the old steeple's clock. And in life, there's always love. Comes into your heart from up above. Gather my dreams and put them out to sea. Gulf stream, and I'm free. The on light gently taps me on the shoulder. And the ice in the glass melts under the whiskey that I pour. The salt in the air from the storm off the coast. As I pull from my glass and offer up this toast. It's been a good run, it's been a good haul. My nets are full, time to pull in my trawl. Mais à me, ma famille, espécial pour mon père. Que te fille, so I plan to free mer. And in life there's always love Comes into your heart from up above Gather my dreams and put them out to sea Gulfstream and I'm free
6: That's a bit rough.
2: (laughs) It was perfect. (laughs) You mentioned Eric Adcock, who is your co-founder, brother in music, of the Hub City All-Stars. Sure. Uh, Formed 25 years ago. Or more. Or more. Uh, How did you two meet? uh, How did you come to, in your musical evolution, form this band, and and how has it stayed together for so long? Yeah,
6: good questions. Uh, Let me start by saying we've been making music together for... Close to 30 years, maybe. Um, we met through, I think maybe my brother was introduced, or another friend musician. It's very hazy. It goes so long back. Uh, A lot of late nights. But we we lived <laughs> in between. We lived in the same neighborhood, or at least uh, adjoining neighborhoods, and there weren't very many young young guys, young cats at that time playing. Uh, Louisiana blues or French music or Zydeco music or Cajun music at that time. So we were bound or destined or uh, it was uh, in our cards to hook up. Uh, and there after that, we, we wrote songs about playing cards and drinking and a lot of things. And, you know, the rest is history, as they all say. But we've made music together uh, and we've traveled the world and we've seen so many places and... Uh, We've made some brilliant records along the way that had a few Grammy nominations and a few pats on the back, and it all feels amazing, and it all feels good, and, you know, every moment passes, and we're all getting older, and I just hope that we can continue to play music and do the same thing.
2: Well, what's amazing about this music is that uh, it's timeless. So you you don't look at someone who's 80 playing this music and be like, Ooh, you're out of place. You're like well, you're almost you know, like right in place.
6: I growing up and playing French music at the age thirteen, I was the only kid playing at right. that time, and every, all of the musicians that were surrounding me were older. They were they were older people. I've always played old music. I've always played music that I felt like were my parents' music. But in my mind, in my perspective, it's all timeless. Like you said, it's it all feels like where we come from. It's all a part of us. It's our sound, we travel the world, and we take it to to other places, and people feel that whatever we're feeling, you know. However you, I, I don't know how to describe it, it's really tough to put words to, for me, but just the feeling.
2: I mean, you're still growing into the music. Sure. You're still a young guy. I'm, I haven't played <laughs> for my
6: peers very much, still. It, right. We still you know, draw an older crowd out there. The demographic that we play for is a, a bit older. Uh, they go to dances to dance they they're they show their appreciation appreciation by dancing you
2: know more than applause what do you learn so. from playing with someone for almost three decades how does it evolve and, and what language do you develop and how does this <coughs> sound continue to grow and expand from from being and having such a consistent partner
6: you learn different languages like non communication in terms of not verbally saying something but musically uh, or or an eye cue, or an elbow cue, you know, in li- in the life setting, you learn things like that. You learn things that are are, are more natural. Um, I heard this 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 uh, podcast the other day of uh, um, Rusty and Doug Kershaw, and and when Rusty was making records, he he had this. I don't know what he called it. There's a there was a uh, a term for it but it was just like this unknown energy that if he was sitting in the same room he can anticipate what the other musician was going to do or transfer that energy and when you play with somebody for so long you, you that it either happens or it doesn't you know you you're, you you feel that energy
2: Uh, place factors into a lot of your music. Uh, Hub City is another name for for Lafayette. Um, You talk about Vermilionville Vermilionville Parish and and Gulfstream. Right. Everyone's hometown affects their music. You know, the Beatles, the Stones, as you mentioned earlier, all the New York great punk bands. How does this place affect your music? And outside of the cultural heritage that comes to the music you listen to, what is it about this place that seeps into the music that you're making and writing?
6: Well, if if you grow up, uh, waking up, first thing, and you smell a roux on the stove, that is going to change your day. That's going to change your outlook on life and how you uh, present yourself to the world. When you That's the first thing that you smell, and coffee grounds brewing. <clears throat> I feel like... We how what we want to write about is is very it's plentiful here it's uh, there's so many raconteurs there's so many storytellers in in our parts in this area. You can go down to the to the uh, corner bar and meet all sorts of characters and and uh, hear all sorts of stories and so people people want to share their knowledge, share their stories, share their bullshit, share whatever they have to share here more than most places in the world that I've been to. And, you know, sometimes it's, a, it's, it's the beautiful, and then sometimes it's the not so beautiful, but that's life. It's everything in between. Can we hear another song? Absolutely.
2: What are you going to play for us? I'm going to play a song called
6: Majolie, Lee, and uh, I wrote this along with Michael Juan Nunez and also Eric Atcock. Uh... <laughs> and it's gonna try to go like this. <laughs>
7: Comes and goes like a tidal flow. Oh my Julie you swept me in your undertow. Girl, I never let you go.
2: One of the things that's clear about the music you write with Eric are the heroes that you worship, incorporate, bring in, cover, pay homage to. Uh, One of the the things that Eric talked about was the Bobby Charles cover that's on on Gulfstream, and he mentioned that you had been noodling around on it for years, and you decided after taking a writer's block break to come (coughs) and record it for Gulfstream. I want to talk about covering your heroes, because it's something that I think seems to always happen on records or live things, but never really discuss how musicians actually pick that or what comes ready to it. So when you begin to approach a cover, what has to be in that song that speaks to you or or wants you to make it in some way your own? Well,
6: uh, before it starts with a song, I think for me more so, it's still uh, uh, where I'm from. It's still regional. It's still uh, I want to pay homage to the people that that are surround that surround me here and growing up. Uh, the guys like Clifton Chenier and the old guys, and I know it's it's like it's passing on the legacy of our music. Whether I'm interpreting that song. Uh, Note for note, or adjusting it to 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 fit my perspective or to what is comfortable in in the realm of my musicality as you know as a musician. So when it be when it becomes the focus to the song itself, the story, uh, yeah, I really I have to feel a part of it. I have to feel something, I have to feel empathy for the character that's singing it, I have to to, to to really dive in, or I'm just covering a song. It's not going to translate the same emotion if, if I don't pour everything that I have into that. Uh, when I recorded I Hope, I've been noodling with the song for a while, it was such a beautiful song, it didn't mean anything until my life was falling apart in divorce. And then it, it you know, the song took a new meaning, it took a, a new turn, uh, and it still takes new turns. I, I i sing it now still in performance settings, but it doesn't, but I don't have the same emotions that I did once we laid the song down in the studio here in, at Dockside,
2: you know, three, four, or five years ago by now. When you say noodling around for a while, how, how long is a while?
6: Uh, well, yeah, I take time. A, a while could be a year. A while could be a couple of years. It, it could be 10 years. It took so long for us to record the record previous to Gulfstream uh, uh, over a 10-year span just for the sake of, I don't know. Life happens, and life gets in the middle and in the way sometimes, but um I tend to lay down material, lay down, record material, and then sit on it for a bit, and then you know try to to get a new, fresh set of ears, a fresh, uh, uh, again, a perspective on, on what this should sound like that I'm making. And then most of the time I drive myself crazy with going back and listening, and, oh, that could be better, and this could be better, and you know, today here at Dockside, that's kind of one of those days where I felt like I came here to sing some songs, re-sing some songs, and, you know, I have to be convinced by this amazing uh, engineer-producer, Justin Dockett, that, you know, that sounds really good. So, you know, every artist does that, I'm sure.
2: Do you find it harder to break your own songs or to break a cover? You know, that's, I think... That's a great
6: question. I feel like we've broken our songs much easier than breaking covers, but damn it, those covers sound so good, and they're such great songs that I, I want to keep doing them and keep spreading them, spreading them out to the world and have new listeners
2: hear them and hear the sound of Louisiana
6: and for people to come back here.
2: Have any of the people you've covered been alive and commented back on what your take or your version of it?
6: Well, uh... We had one, and I say we, Eric and I, uh, we wrote a song for Buckwheat, the late, great Buckwheat Zodico. Mm. Uh, it, it's an original song, it's called No Need for a Crown, and it basically talks about, you know, in the Zodico community, uh, there's lots of self-proclamation of kings, uh, and it's, it's, it's a part of, the, it's a part of the, the, the talk, it's part of the walk in the culture and it's a beautiful thing. So the the song that we wrote for Buckwheat is is really just saying that he's the best and there's been no need for a crown. Anyway he was uh, getting really sick and uh, toward the end of his life unfortunately we got a chance to play him the song and he sent nothing but good positive vibes and and appreciation for
2: it and uh,
6: so in that case, it holds a special place
2: in our heart. Last question, two parts, taking it back to tons. When you're in the kitchen cooking, if there is music, what are you listening to?
6: Well, we have uh, some great Latinas in, uh, working in the kitchen, and they're playing some beautiful norteña music on their iPhones occasionally while, while they're prepping and while things are going on. Uh, We we don't have a jukebox yet, but I'm pretty sure that we're going to put more music in tons before too long.
2: And what is your specialty that you consider your best dish above all else?
6: Oh, I love making sauce. I love making sauces. Switch the proteins, it doesn't matter. I just love the process of cooking down onions and cooking down the trinity, the garlic, whatever you want to put into it. Uh, I love that process of just taking the time and and working the heat.
2: Amazing. Um, What's coming up next? Tours, more recordings? More tours, more recordings.
6: Uh, The Hub City All-Stars, we have a few big gigs here this year coming up already. I'm doing some solo things. I've got a trio that I'm working, going back to Europe later in the year, going up to... Canada for the big Congre Mondial uh, Acadian celebrations in the summertime, so lots of things happening,
2: yeah. Amazing. Where can people find you, find your music, find your tour dates?
6: Um, Come to Lafayette, Louisiana, and just (laughs)
2: knock on some doors
6: and ask for my name. (laughs) No, dot com .com as well, and just search Roddy Romero. You can find something. What are you going
2: to take us out with?
6: Uh, I'll do one of those covers.
2: Perfect. I was hoping you'd say that. Big thank you to Holly and Tons. Big thank you for Justin to opening up uh, Dockside for us and letting us record this uh, special episode of Snacky Tunes today. We really appreciate it. Roddy, thank Thank you you for for being here. Uh, We'll be back next week with uh, another episode of Snacky Tunes. Thanks for listening.
7: Ain't no sacred holy cow Got no pretty ruby mouth To smile and charm me through No clever silver tongue To flatter people into doing what I want them to Ain't much for pushing buttons Pulling puppet strings or fussing Besides making silly rhymes I really ain't much good at nothing but my heart keeps me amused in this big world of confusion, cause I'm a dreamer. Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer. No blue blood touch of class, no laminated pass to where the in crowd hangs. No flaming rum desserts No front row seats reserved When old Blue Eye sings But break it down to loving It's more than just a promise No gift to all the girls But I got the one I wanted And through any storm that blows She still loves me As yes, she knows that I'm a dreamer Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer When there's pavement all around Green meadows can't be found They will be dreamers When every cotton field is gone I Hope my children will have grown To be dreamers No boss to paint no mind No turning wheels to grind blade of grass disturbed or sleeping baby stirred, there will be no noise at all just a silent voice that calls to all the dreamers Hallelujah I'm a dreamer and my heart keeps Hallelujah, I'm a dreamer. We
3: talk about food.